Welcome to the show. In this one, I have a conversation with Anchorage Assembly member and Anchorage mayoral candidate Forrest Dunbar. Forrest's introduction to politics came in 2002, right after he graduated high school, when he interned for Frank Murkowski, who, at the time, was a United States Senator from Alaska. Before becoming a member of the Alaska Assembly, Forrest was the Vice President of the Scenic Foothills Community Council. In 2016, he joined the Anchorage Assembly. Since then, he has served as a member, vice chair, and chair. More recently, he's been gearing up to run for the mayor of Anchorage. If elected, he says that his focus will be on economic recovery and economic development. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www patreon.com slash crude magazine that's patreon.com slash crude magazine and pick the subscription tier that works for you i want to thank everyone subscribed at the company man tier these are the people who have subscribed to the crude patreon for 50 dollars or more trina duber seward brewing company the grind coffee shop in juno Derek adolph blue and gold board shop Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Forrest Dunbar. Forrest points to his grandmother as his biggest inspiration. She survived the Holocaust and then went on to get a PhD in chemistry, despite the gender barriers of the time. In her 50s, she went back to school to become a nurse, which is what she worked as for the next 20 years. Her life story, her determination, her intelligence, and what she went through and ultimately became continues to guide Forrest in all aspects of his life. So here he is, Forrest Dunbar. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. So I just finished my questions for you like maybe two minutes ago. I'm pretty confident in them. I, I, <laughs> I think we're going to have a good time. All right, sounds good. Looking forward to it. So I did some internet sleuthing just kind of like you know searching around the internet and one thing that that i came upon was that you like circumnavigating the muldoon park in running shoes while <laughs> listening to journey <laughs> that was that's from a while ago that's from like 2014 or 2015 i think um i mean it's not that i don't still like l- listening to journey or running but uh, i have since moved out of muldoon and i live closer to east high school now so now it's more about meandering through or running through Russian Jack Springs Park rather mm-hmm. than uh, rather than Muldoon Park. But uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. 
I think when I was younger, I listened to 80s rock sort of ironically, you know, and then as I got older, I realized like, no, I just actually like this. Like, I, I am no longer listening to this ironically. I actually enjoy some of these 80s rock songs. It's pretty funny. I have a feeling that that has happened more oftentimes than not. And in my experience, it's something like, uh, I mean, at least in my generation, it's something like the Backstreet Boys. You know, we listen to it ironically and then all of a sudden, you know, here we are 20 years later and we remember every single word to the songs. Yeah, I I, um, I mean, the Backstreet Boys were huge when I was in high school, too, and uh, and in sync and all that kind of stuff. I was never a huge fan, although I definitely did listen to some of those songs. I haven't gone back, but it is sort of funny, you know, if you were in high school in the 90s or early 2000s like the oldies stations are already starting to carry some of the stuff that you mm-hmm. listen to you know certainly like nirvana or rock from the early 90s is now considered like classic rock or at least it's getting there which is pretty funny we're we're rapidly getting older <laughs> what is your experience with um hearing something like that and kind of reflecting on your own age <laughs> well, I guess I think I'm what I'm considered a, an old millennial. I think that's the term. Like I'm, I'm a millennial, but I'm one of the older uh, ones. I was born in 1984, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, just thinking about the people that were our high school teachers or our parents during our formative years, and we're already hitting that age. Like we're the age that they were at that time, right? Mm-hmm. And thinking, and but I'm sure we don't think of ourselves as old. We think of ourselves as whatever it is, still finding our way in the world. And and yet, uh, when we were young, those were the older folks. And I think it's all, I don't know, it's pretty funny. Um, I, I also saw something about, you know, the millennial generation. You know, we've already had, we had 9-11, and then we had a, a crash, an economic crash, and then we had a pandemic and another economic crash and just we've gone through quite a lot in the last uh 15 20 years and uh some of the things that we thought were going to be smooth sailing like they were in the 90s didn't just didn't really pan out that way you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it seems like this generation will be very interesting to sociologists economists you know 50 100 years from now no, I think so. That's, before we fully oh, get, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, go, go ahead, go ahead. I was no, just going to say, uh, well, I don't know if we want to get into it about what happened at the Capitol building on Wednesday, and I'm not sure when you're going to release this podcast exactly, but um, I think that's also one of those formative events for our whole society. And mm-hmm. um, I happened to intern in Congress uh, right after high school, and then um, I went to college in D.C. and I worked on Capitol Hill, and so watching those events unfold last week, I think all. Also is really going to inform my my personal life and my civic life going forward. In what way? Well, you know, I think that the last couple of years have been a learning experience. You know, I think that certain things that we thought about our society perhaps um, were not true, um, or they're true, but they're a little more fragile than we expected. The idea that a group of folks would contest a legitimate democratic election and then attempt to violently prevent the counting of those votes and storm the Capitol, I think would have been seen as beyond the pale even a couple months ago. Um, and certainly when I was giving Capitol tours when I was 18, 19 years old, it never occurred to me that there would be a group of folks, Americans, that would storm the Capitol and kill Capitol police and um, you know try to basically, and they did prevent um, a, a 
a session of Congress, it just seems inconceivable. And it's also, I think, you know, I thought security was better, frankly. Um, when I was living and working there, it seemed like there was good security there. Um, but the fact that people were able to push through and push into the heart of American democracy, you know, I was actually talking to one of my friends who worked on Capitol Hill today, and he was talking about the rotunda and the folks that made it all the way to the rotunda. And I think what a lot of folks don't realize about the rotunda, and the rotunda is the space right underneath the big the dome, is underneath the rotunda is this um, section called, I think it's the... What is it? It's not the tombs, but there's another section for it, one section below. But then below that, in the basement, there's this little room. And I remember once I got lost walking through the Capitol uh, in one of the basement levels because the, the Capitol is all a jumble. And I found myself at this hallway with this interesting grate and on the other side of this grate was this big it looked like a big iron altar and i was like i didn't know what this was and again i was 18 19 years old and i turned to my right and i read and it was describing this is where abraham lincoln laid in state after he was assassinated right this basically altar before they took him um this is where his body laid and i believe it's where um, a number of other people laid as well but the idea that so directly underneath where those folks were <laughs> smearing feces and uh you know burning things and uh carrying confederate flags directly underneath them was where the body of Abraham Lincoln laid after he was assassinated. And I, I don't know, it just, it strikes at the heart of what the, the American Republic is about to me. Does it ever make you think that we haven't progressed as much as we think we've progressed? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, <laughs> I think if you spoke with folks, people of color in particular, they would say that they already had this as part of their lived experience, that they already knew this. And certainly if you are a student of history and you've read about the Constitution, you've read about the, uh, the history of constitutional law, you've read about the Civil War, you've read about the Reconstruction, um, this isn't exactly surprising. We knew this was there bubbling under the surface, but that it would become so brazen, I think, is something that was unexpected. And I think the way that it's also interacted with QAnon and con the conspiratorial mindset and been accelerated by social media is something that is unique to our generation that we have to grapple with. Like, I remember when Facebook first came out when we were in college. It came out when I was a junior in college. And it was basically a dating app, you know, I mean, that was like one of its primary mm -hmm. functions. Um, and, and then Twitter came out a number of years later. And I think there was this belief in it as a, a way to spread the truth that that and the internet more broadly was going to, you know, put all of human knowledge at our fingertips. And there was this real sense of optimism. And I felt it too. And I didn't expect that it could be so easily subverted, um, you know, by you know, not just Russia, but I mean, part of it's by intelligence agencies, part of it's by people just making a profit, part of it's just by random people who are essentially trolls that get a rise out of uh, out of doing it. Um, but that 
you could spread misinformation and disinformation so readily and that people would believe it, you know, whether it comes to conspiracy theories around COVID-19 or the vaccine mm -hmm. or uh, racial politics or, you know, the, the current uh, bugaboo on the right is that, you know, it wasn't actually uh, supporters of the president. It was Antifa that, that invaded the Capitol building with no proof mm -hmm. at all. And you see that parroted by people um, that uh, should know better. And we thought they did know better. Right. And I'll say just from my personal life and my uh, personal history, you know, my, my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor. And um, I always thought of Holocaust denial as being on the fringes of American society. And, um, you know, certainly growing up, that's how it felt. I, I knew there were people out there that felt the Holocaust was a, a lie or a myth, even though in my own family, you know, my great grandfather died in the camp. My grandmother was there and escaped. Um, but even with those kind of first person uh, testimonials, people still refuse to accept the truth. Um, and so I knew that that kind of conspiratorial mindset was out there. I didn't realize it was quite so prevalent. And so uh, it was so easy for people to fall into it. And social media, I think, really uh, accelerates that fall. Um, and once you think you you have that one unique piece of knowledge that only you have, and you can't be talked out of that, it is interesting how that tends to kind of, I, I don't know, metastasize or move sideways into other conspiracies, right? If you, if you believe that the COVID vaccine has a chip in it, you are much more likely to believe the Holocaust is a myth. You are much more likely to believe in certain... Uh, uh, you know, the protocols of the Elder Zion or something like that. It's interesting how it's all kind of connected or, or, or it tends to be be connected um, and how, again, it's been accelerated by social media. Mm -hmm. You know, I read that your biggest role model was your grandmother, the one that you just brought up, I would assume, right? Yep, that's right. Why was she such an inspiration to you? I mean, part of it is obvious, right? It's just her life story. So she was 12 or 13 years old when she escaped with her mother and got a transit visa over Spain and Portugal and uh, caught a boat from Lisbon to New York and escaped from the Nazis. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, and then, you know, she, she landed on American shore at 12 or 13 and she went on to eventually get a PhD in chemistry from, you know, Washington University, St. Louis. Like that's pretty incredible. Actually, maybe it's UC Berkeley. I always conflate. She got a master's from one and a PhD from the other. I should I should know that off the top of my head. But at a time when relatively few women, you know, in the 50s were getting PhDs, she did that as an, as an immigrant whose father had been murdered. Um, and she was just had this steel to her. And, um, you know, she actually ended up not using the, that degree very much. She married my grandfather. Um, they had my mother and my aunt. And then um, they actually got a divorce. And after they got a divorce, she went back to school and became a nurse. And in her 50s, she went back and was a nurse for 20 years at Kaiser in uh, in Oakland, California. And so just her, her life story, you know, the, what she overcame and uh, what she became. And also just, you know, she was funny. She was witty. She was, I think, understandably always a little bit, um, what's the term? Uh, not cynical. She was worried. I'll put it that way. She was worried about 
the world. Mm -hmm. You know, she kept a lot of canned goods. She was worried about the state of our country. Even back after 9-11, I remember her saying that she was worried about nationalism in this country. And she was worried that we'd go down this darker path. And, you know, fortunately, we didn't for many years. And she passed away long before um, the current rise of the kind of conspiratorial right. Um, and, uh, you know, in some ways, I'm thankful for that. But I think that, you know, her, her strength and her intelligence, and the the, the fact that she um, continued to be engaged in the world, af even after going through this tremendous trauma as a as a very young girl, um, I, I think that was what made her so inspirational to me. Did she ever explain that experience at the concentration camp to you? Yeah, she didn't ever really talk about it directly to me. So she wasn't in a concentration camp. She was in what's called a transportation camp. There's an interesting okay. distinction. So her father died of uh, dysentery before they could even be sent to, you know, the gas chambers or what have you. Um, they were when mm -hmm. when France fell, they were living in Karlsruhe in the in the Rhine Valley. And part of the surrender of France was a bunch of Jews were taken out of the Rhine Valley and sent west instead of east, um, which was very fortunate. Mm -hmm. But the sanitation was very poor in the transportation camps um, near uh, Nice, I guess it was. No, not Nice. Anyway, <laughs> uh, in in southern France, and and that's where, okay. where he perished. She she spoke. Uh, she gave a series of interviews to a um, to a researcher in the late '90s that I have on VHS, and actually my family digitized, and so I've watched through that. Um, and it is very interesting to learn about that kind of experience. And um, you know. One of the really interesting things, I think, when people are living through history, um, whether it's now or even in World War II, just listening to what my grandma said and what some other folks have said, is how much of the world seems relatively normal, if that makes sense, and how much normal mm -hmm. life continues, you know? And she was a young girl concerned with all the things that, or a young woman, I should say, that a young woman would be concerned about. And she expressed regret in latter years that she sort of didn't take things more seriously and never really wrapped her mind around the fact that her father might die. And she was upset that she had to leave school and leave her friends and do all that kind of stuff, um, you know, following Kristallnacht and everything else that happened in Germany. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think about that sometimes, about we're going through these this historical epoch and, uh, you know, how much of normal life actually does continue. No, absolutely. I, I've talked to my wife about this before, where you can only really focus on the world that is immediately around you. Yep. You know, if you, if you're constantly trying to consume yourself with things that are completely out of your control, it is just draining. Yeah. No, there, there's a, um, there's a book by a constitutional law professor named Bruce Ackerman talking about, um, constitutional moment theory, which is about sort of the normal functioning of a democracy versus a constitutional moment. And when a democracy is normally function, or democratic republic, I should say, um, most people in, in that country shouldn't have to worry about politics. You should be able to go about your life and not worry about what's happening at, at at any level of government. I mean, you can still be engaged and you should be engaged, but you don't have to sort of worry about it. You've got everyday life to worry about, right? You've got kids, you've got work, you've got your house, you've got your 
your hobby. You know, maybe you'd rather be playing hockey than following the ins and outs of, you know, a filibuster in Washington, D.C., right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but a constitutional moment is when the entire sort of body politic is engaged because we are talking about something fundamental to that republic. We're no longer in normal politics and very abnormal things start to happen. Um, and his theory is that this doesn't just mean when we are amending the constitution. So obviously at the founding of the republic, that was a constitutional moment. The civil war was a constitutional moment. You know, the passage of the major amendments were constitutional moments, but so was the new deal, for example, that fundamentally challenged and changed what the constitution meant and what the relationship between the federal government was going to be with the individual citizen. So was the civil rights act, for example, which gave actual teeth and effect to the post-civil war amendments, right? So um, I think it's pretty clear that we're living through a constitutional moment right now. Um, and that's why people are so engaged at many levels of our government, right? That what happened on Wednesday was a challenge to the fundamental constitutional order of this country. And constitutional moments don't have to succeed. Um, there have been attempted constitutional moments that failed. And we went back to something resembling normal politics. And I, and I do sort of feel that most Americans right now, if you ask them, you know, what do you most want from 2021 or for the next four years, they would say, we just kind of want government to be boring again, you know, mm -hmm. at all levels, <laughs> yeah. like make a government boring again, you know, we're still going to be engaged. There are some issues uh, that are still going to be uh, talked about. Obviously, um, you know, there's still civil rights issues that are very much ongoing. Um, but for a lot of folks, uh, they want us to return to something a little bit more resembling normal politics. Um, and I think that's the case at the national level and it's the case at the local level too. But we don't really get to choose that. You know, the, we, the constitutional moments sort of choose us rather than we choose them. And so it'll be interesting to see mm -hmm. over the, the coming years where we go. Um, and, uh, you know, we've definitely seen a lot more engagement. <laughs> so I have this written down further in my notes, but I think we have already kind of arrived at sure. a spot where I can kind of shoehorn this in. So I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Sure. So if you don't mind, I want to give you a couple of hypothetical scenarios to see how you would respond to them. And just to be clear, these questions aren't meant to be provocative at all. I think that seeing where your values and morals land during moments of crisis reveal who you truly are. Sure. So the first scenario is, a group of people illegally storm a government building in Alaska. How would you address that? And how would you refer to these people in the media? I think it, the devil is in the details, right? It depends on who they are and what they're doing. You know, we've seen disability activists, for example, go to the Hart Senate office building and camp out in front of, uh, camp out in front of a senator's office because they're asking for a renewal or a change to the Disabilities Act. That is very different from uh, armed insurrectionists or armed terrorists even starting to kidnap people um, and occupy uh, a building like that. So I think I think the devil is in the details. It also depends on where it is and, and what my role is. I think the first thing you have to do is call folks together and get a sense of what is actually happening on the ground. So if I was the mayor, for example, I'd have to speak with the governor with the police chief, with the head of the Department of Public Safety, mm -hmm. with the assembly, um, with perhaps the state troopers, with the FBI, with the federal delegation. And it sounds like a lot, but it's really not. That's what you have to do. You have to have a clear sense of who they are and what they're doing. Um, 
you know, I, I think obviously you should always resist um, violence for as long as you can. Mm -hmm. um, and the application of state violence, you know, through the police force, you should try to negotiate, you should try to resolve things peacefully, that should always be the first goal. That being said, you know, this is a nation of laws and no one is above the law. And if law enforcement has to be called in to remove folks, um, then I think that is appropriate. Um, and, and, it, and it also depends which building it is, frankly, you know, if they uh, storm, uh, I don't know, if they storm one of our Solway services warehouses, that is worrisome and unacceptable, <laughs> but it is a little yeah. bit different from storming the state capitol and preventing yeah. a certification of an election. I mean, you're talking about challenging the, uh, the basis of our democracy, um, and that cuts a little bit deeper than, you know, perhaps, um, you know, I, I would, I'll give an example. Um, I was in no way supportive of the folks that stormed the uh, building um, in Oregon that was a national park building. Um, and, you know, that was resolved. There, there were some shootings in that, and that was a, a terrible thing to have happen. But the... Uh, the the law enforcement mostly sort of hung back and surrounded it, um, and I felt that was more appropriate than if they are occupying the U.S. Capitol. I think you have to be much more proactive and uh, and get folks out of there so we can resume, you know, the functioning of our democracy. So let's consider the same thing happened in Anchorage that happened in Washington Washington D.C. recently. Yeah. Well. You know, we don't really have a building quite like the Capitol in Anchorage, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not trying to dodge your question. It would probably happen to the Anchorage Assembly where I sit, right? Um, and I think that there would certainly be a, a role for law enforcement in preventing that and bringing those folks to justice. And people now are talking about unity and healing, and I'm all for unity and healing, but first you have to have accountability and justice, especially if you are, again, challenging the very basis of American democracy, if you are attempting a coup or a push or whatever you, you know, your preferred terminology is, right? If you are trying to overthrow the government, um, there are going to be and there should be very serious consequences, especially if you're doing so. Um, again, this is what's so frustrating. Like if there had actually been widespread voter fraud of some kind and there actually had been, it was verified that there had been um, a, uh, what do you call it? Like an auto coup. I can't remember the exact term for it, but there's a term in Latin. If, if uh, Trump or any, any uh, elected official had stuffed the ballot boxes and said, oh yeah, you know, like Putin will say, I got 95% of the vote, you know, mm -hmm. and, and, and it was clear that there had been widespread fraud, then there might be a place for a very strong reaction from the people. And you'd hope it would be peaceful, but you know, there, there, there have been revolutions in other places um, resisting dictatorship. But that is not at all what happened here. What happened here is people fabricated voter fraud. There was never any proof offered. Um, there were 60 court cases that were brought that were found to be um, 
without merit. Um, we had a normal functioning of our democracy, which is, by the way, really hard to commit widespread fraud because it's so um, dispersed, you know, and we have a mm -hmm. lot of professionals that are non-political at every level. Um, and we, you know, we, we have very few instances of verified voter fraud anywhere in the country. Um, you know, it's, it's a few votes out of millions. And most of them are people who made a mistake rather than people who are intentionally trying to commit fraud. And and it's just not worth it to commit fraud for a couple people when you're facing a, a felony charge, right? And so the people that spread this information and spread these conspiracies that got these people all worked up, um, they were fundamentally attacking democracy too. The you know the people who said that these results are illegitimate or there's no evidence or that, that there's evidence that these uh, votes are, you know, they just made stuff up about about election workers. They made stuff up about discovering ballots and it all proved to be false. And and that to me is a, is an attack frankly on our democracy, on our de democratic legitimacy. And if you were a foreign actor who was trying to undermine undermine American democracy, that's exactly what you do. Um, you just have to so um, disbelief and uh, you know people distrust in American government, uh, and then it's going to at some point spiral into the kind of thing we saw uh, on Wednesday. Man, you know, I didn't really expect to be talking about this quite so much. It's funny. We were—I thought we were talking about the Anchorage mayor's race, but I guess you know, it's just so—it's such an incredible moment in history, and it's so unlike anything else that's happened um, that it's—it's it's hard not to talk about it, right? Well, we'll get to the. <laughs> we'll get to the mayorship. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do you feel like certain rules that uphold American democracy are either broken or not being enforced right now? I think there was a realization um, through the Trump era in particular, but even before that with um, Mitch McConnell and, you know, I'm sure there are examples on the other side as well, but um a lot of what we relied on for American democracy to function were norms rather than laws, if that makes sense. They're not statutes. They were democratic norms. Like it was just understood this is how you did it. You know, um, it's a norm that the president um, uh, revealed their tax returns, for example. It, and that was a norm that Trump just broke. I mean, he promised to do it and then eventually then he just never did it. Right. And so there was never any consequences. That was a norm. And so mm -hmm. I think part of what's going to happen in the next few years is figuring out which norms need to be codified in law. Now, there's also a problem if people just don't follow the law, you know, the law's in the book, but it's dead letter. Um, and, and I think that there's a realization that that might also be the case um, in certain places. Um, so, I, I mean, I think there has been a challenge to some of the things underlying American democracy. But I also, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I'm, I'm in politics because I think things can get better. And I believe there are reforms that can be made. Um, and, you know, and, and I think that the American people and the Alaskan people and people in Anchorage can continue to participate in their democracy in meaningful ways. I mean, one of the worst things that could happen from this is people just throwing up their hands and turning away entirely, right? Um, mm -hmm. Things aren't going to get better if people totally disengage. They probably should just engaged through things other than Facebook, right? Um, <laughs> because there's so much different disinformation there. Um, or a partisan news blog, you know, or, you know, OANN, you know, uh, One American News Network, where people are actively being fed disinformation. Um, I, I think it's difficult to find some place that's neutral. And I'm sure the things that I consider neutral, some other folks wouldn't. Um, but I mean, there are certainly places like 
Infowars, for example, that are much mm -hmm. less neutral, much less fact-based, and are actively undermining our democracy. And I hope um, that folks can turn away from those things. Um, and then beyond that, you know, I, I, I like to think that um, we will get back to something more resembling a normal functioning democracy. But I think there are going to have to be fairly significant reforms um, and fairly significant changes. Um, most of that will happen at the federal level. I think here at the Muni level, we have been able to avoid most of the worst of national politics. You know, there has been a lot of tension at the Anchorage Assembly this last year, but in general, the things we do are, you know, firefighters and uh, road maintenance and snow removal and parks and trails and, you know, there's nothing partisan about a pothole, right? And so hopefully we can come together uh, about that kind of basic functioning of our muni government. And here at the municipality, we have vote by mail, we have automatic voter registration, we have been able to prevent a lot of voter suppression. And so we we get decent turnout, it could definitely be better. Um, but we have quite a few people that participate in the, in the mayoral election and in, and in the off cycle assembly elections. And usually, um, I, I'd like to think because in part because there's no partisanship on the ballot, I like to think that those elections are more driven by actual delivery of basic services rather than some kind of, you know, very toxic extremist national political agenda. You know, since you brought up the municipality and the Anchorage Assembly just now, what would you say to the people who are wary about or unhappy with the municipality and Anchorage Assembly for having closed door sessions? Yeah, you know, the closed door sessions were done during the pandemic and they were a response to um, they were a response to the pandemic and trying to present prevent the spread of the virus. But to be clear, um, we broadcast those on uh, on television. We allow people to call in and we always had um, email available too. So they were in no way secret or hidden. And we got a ton of testimony. You know, we got a ton of written testimony. We got a ton of spoken testimony over the phone. Um, and I think as we went on, we learned methods to have people in the room while still maintaining some amount of social distance. Although I will say it has been unfortunate that folks have said, you know, if, if we come in, we'll wear masks and we'll be, you know, we will take steps to prevent the spread of the infection. And then some of those folks came in and did just the opposite. They refused to wear a mask or they wore a mask inappropriately. Um, they didn't maintain social distance. They didn't respect the other people in that room. And so now we're getting quite a lot of people saying they don't feel safe coming to the Anchorage Assembly. So in a, in a way, they are also being stifled, right? That folks that might want to come and, and testify don't feel safe in that room because of um, some of the the things that have gone on there. Um, but no, it was certainly unfortunate that we had to make a variety of changes to the assembly uh, procedures during the pandemic. And we want to get back to normal functioning as soon as possible. And we've definitely moved in, in that direction. And, and now there are people um, in, in that room besides just uh, the assembly members and the staff. But again, there was always opportunities to testify. It was never secret in the sense of an executive session. It was always broadcast on TV and on the internet Internet, um, and we always had a lot of public participation. So for someone who, again, is, is kind of wary of these, you know, closed door sessions, because maybe they didn't know that they were broadcasted. Can you explain one of those sessions to me? 
Well, I mean, we just had, uh, they were just assembly meetings, like normal assembly meetings. I mean, they, they were just like you'd see right now broadcast on TV. There weren't any, there wasn't anything unusual about them except for the, uh, the pandemic and the need to try to um, prevent the spread of the virus. And, and, you know, we had restrictions on how many people were allowed to be in a room um, that were imposed by the then mayor. Um, and we were trying to comply with those. Um, and now some of us, a lot of us call into the meeting now again to try to maintain that social distance but um you know they were regular assembly meetings um and uh they had you know public notice they had things posted they uh there was public testimony it was it was like an assembly meeting you'd go to now except that there wasn't in person um people testifying at the mic people were testifying over the phone and i'll say most of the testimony we get on the assembly year to year month to month it comes through our our the internet like we we get a ton of emails and we read them and we respond to a lot of them and we get you know we were getting thousands of emails this summer about um you know the pandemic and the restrictions and people opposed to the mask mandate that kind of thing Mm -hmm. so i have a second scenario for you Mm -hmm. there's a school shooting Mm. the outcome is not good there are many casualties Anchorage is in a state of shock and grief. How would you address the city? No, that, that's a, a great question. And unfortunately, we've had you know tragedies all over the country like that. I think the role of the mayor is first to work with the police chief and other law enforcement to make sure that the city is safe, that we're not going to have a repeat of it, that whoever perpetrated that shooting is in custody um, or has perished or is otherwise not a threat. And once you know that they're not a threat, then, um, you know, the the role of the mayor, I think, is to be a voice of reason, a voice of comfort in this case. You need to speak with the uh, the families of, of the victims. You need to call them. You need to, you know, once they're ready, obviously, you need to work with the school district. And you need to be out there in public letting people know um, that you that you care, that you understand, that you uh, are going to prevent this from happening again. Um, and, and then, of course, it's about listening. You know, people need a forum to express their griefs. Some people do. Some people will want to be very private and some people will want to have a public forum. But, um, you know, we've had tragedies in this city before. We have an ongoing tragedy right now. I mean, we <laughs> COVID-19 is now, I think, the fourth or fifth leading cause of death in, in Alaska. I mean, it, it's definitely rising. And I don't think we've done a good job of wrapping our mind around that grief and, you know, giving ourselves space to mourn. And partly it's the insidious nature of this virus and how people die and where. Um, But yeah, I think the role of the mayor uh, is to uh, be a voice of comfort when you can be and to listen to folks and allow them to express their grief once you have, you know, made sure that uh, everyone is safe. There's this sentiment that goes something along the lines of, remember the victims, forget the shooters. Mm. Would you name the shooters in the media? If I, if I was the mayor, I don't think I would. I don't think I would say their names. But I would not begrudge the media doing so because the media's role is different, right? The media's role is to, to 
relay the facts. And um, there are some folks in the media who also will not say the name of the shooter, and, and I understand and appreciate that. Um, but for the mayor, you know, I, I think, yes, I think it's much better to focus on the folks who uh, are the survivors and the people who are the victims than the perpetrators. And I'll tell you, I mean, I, I, an example of this. Um, so we had the the serial killer, um, and uh, and he, you know, was shooting folks and and ended up shooting an APD officer. I I do wish that um, you know I went and visited that officer's family at Providence and and I do mm-hmm. wish that people knew his name a little bit more than uh, the folks who you know. Um, the the shooter's name um and uh yeah <laughs> uh to remember the heroes yeah no absolutely i mean and uh you know it's the heroes and, and and the victims and that just doesn't seem to be for whatever reason quite how our our society works but yeah his name was officer arn salau by the way mm-hmm. he was the one who shot and who lived so inevitably there would be a conversation or debate on gun control. Mm-hmm. What would be your stance? You know, it's not, uh, it's really not a municipal issue. Um, that is to say that gun control is our state level laws and federal laws. Um, I, you know, I grew up in Alaska. I'm a gun owner, a gun user. Um, and, uh, as were people in my family. So I, I, I in general, I'm in general, I'm, I'm skeptical of, you know, how do I say it? Model based gun control. I will say that, you know, I think that universal background checks and making sure that people without serious um, mental health issues, and this is not to disparage people with mental health issues who are not violent. Cause there's a lot, a lot of folks like that. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I think that making sure that people who, for example, um, people who have been, convicted of felony domestic violence, they cannot own a firearm right now. And I support that, that I support, I think it's the Lautenberg amendment it's called. Um, and I support those kind of restrictions to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous criminals. And one thing that I always think about when I think about, um, gun control in Alaska is Alaskans have a very different relationship with guns than, other American cities. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up with uh, guns, you know, just stacked in the corner of the house and me and my brothers always knew to, you know, not mess with them. They weren't toys. And so I think that that helps frame a young mind and then eventually mature mind to know that these aren't playthings. These aren't meant to be used on other people. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's right. I grew up in Cordova. Um, well, I, until I was seven, I lived in Eagle, which is a small town on the Yukon. And then I went to high school in Cordova. I moved to Anchorage during law school um, during the summer. But uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Cordova, there's probably a dozen guns per person, you know, <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. 
guns of every variety. I think my family only had three, if memory serves. So we were on the on the light side in terms of our of our uh, uh, cache of, of firearms. Um, but yeah, here they are primarily tools, you know, and and for hunting, you know. Although people certainly still do use them for self defense as well. Um, but yeah, there is a, a different relationship and a different sort of cultural signifier for firearms in Alaska and Anchorage than there is in um, much of the lower forty eight. There's no question. How do you think your upbringing in Eagle and then in Cordova and then now, you know, you're living in Anchorage, how do you think that that has influenced you and your understanding of Alaskans and Alaskan issues? Yeah, I mean, that's that's who we are, right? Um, where and how we grow up. And certainly people can move to Alaska and become Alaskans pretty quickly. Like I, I have a very expansive mm-hmm. view of what it means to be an Alaskan. Uh, if you move here and you want to make this a better place to live and you intend to remain here, then I think you can become an Alaskan pretty quickly, actually. Um, but, you know, for those of us who grew up here, there's no question we were shaped by this state. Um, and for me in rural Alaska, it's kind of funny. My mom used to joke, she used to call me a city boy. Um, you know, which is funny when you're living out in the middle of nowhere, basically. Um, but she called me a city boy because I love coming into Anchorage for whatever reason, uh-huh. you know, whether it was for judo or basketball or pet band or whatever it is, uh, future problem solvers. I love to come into Anchorage. Um, and I'm not sure what it was. It was just the excitement, the shopping, the other people. I always, that was really appealed to me. And later in life, I would live in places like Tokyo and Boston and Washington, D.C. that were quite large cities before I moved back here. And I've always been comfortable in that environment, but also in that really small town. And there's no question that you're shaped by that experience when you live somewhere where you know virtually everyone and they know you and they know your Mm -hmm. parents. You know, it is a different kind of experience. Um, But Anchorage, you know, Anchorage is so interesting. I think there is a a notion in rural Alaska that Anchorage is somehow apart from the rest of the state. And sometimes I think that's in Anchorage too, that there's this divide that people try to put between Anchorage and rural Alaska, you know, that Anchorage is urban, Anchorage is different and apart. Um, But I wish that we could get past that and understand that we are all Alaskans, whether you're living in rural Alaska or you're living in Anchorage, that we are all Alaskans mm-hmm. and we're very much in this together, right? Like Anchorage is not going to thrive if rural Alaska suffers and rural Alaska relies, of course, on Anchorage as one of the beating economic, the beating economic heart of the state. Um, we are very much reliant on each other. And I wish there was a little bit less animosity, which I do see coming from both directions, to be honest. Um, but I wish there was a little bit less of that. How would you describe Anchorage to someone who's never been or even has disparaging things to say about it? I think it depends on who they are, right? So it depends on what their frame of reference is. So if they're coming from the lower 48 and they are disparaging Anchorage, I would tell them that this is a wonderful place to live. Um, We've got a spectacular uh, outdoor setting, but also we've got a fairly sophisticated populace here. You know, you're going to meet smart professionals here like you would anywhere. We've got hardworking folks of all different backgrounds here. We're one of the most diverse cities in the country. We have the most diverse census tract in the country. I think that's really surprising when folks hear that. We have some of the most diverse high schools in the country. Um, Anchorage is in no way a backwater. We are an important American 
American city. We have the fifth busiest cargo airport in the in the northern hemisphere. You know, we we have a, a, a very large military presence. We're an important place to be. Uh, if they were coming from rural Alaska, I, I think I would say similar to what I said earlier, which is I've lived in rural Alaska. I lived in Anchorage. We are all Alaskans and people. And it's also it's not like one or the other. People flow back and forth. You know, sometimes they'll live in rural Alaska. Sometimes they'll live here. And we've got good, hardworking folks in both places. We've got people who care about this state in both places. We've got a tight knit community in both places. And we should appreciate that. How would you describe Anchorage or Alaska politically? I think we are first and foremost independent. You know, that that is there's a very strong independent streak in Alaskan politics and in Anchorage politics that people, they want to know the person, they want to know their policies more than they want the party. Now, there are definitely um, there's definitely a core of folks who just want to vote for Democrats and a core of folks that just want to vote for Republicans. Um, but independents, um, non-declared, undeclared are uh there are more of those folks in Alaska than any other, uh, than, than the other political parties combined. Um, and so I think first and foremost, we're independent. And I, I also think here in Anchorage, there is this kind of old school boosterism, like they used to say in the, in the, the old West where people just want to see Anchorage, um, you know, grow and thrive. That's certainly how I feel, you know, like I, I feel first and foremost, I am, I am pro Anchorage, you know, as, as mm -hmm. an Anchorage official, and I'm trying to make Anchorage a better place to live. Um, why I'm running for mayor, obviously, and more than seeing any political party or political ideology, um, you know, succeed. I want to see Anchorage succeed and I'm willing to hear ideas from, from anyone. And I think that is something, you know, that people in Anchorage and people in Alaska really value. And that's borne out, I think, by the, the thousands of doors I've knocked um, over, during my time on the assembly and all the community councils I've been to. Most people I talk to, I don't know if they're Democrat or Republican, um, but I know that they care about you know, the park near their house. I know they care about snow removal along Northern Lights. You know, I, I know they care about, um, you know, uh, uh, the fire department and making sure our fire apparatuses are fully funded. Like those are the kind of things we talk about. The world that's around them. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's what local government does. Local government deliver, delivers basic services, you know, and, and there's more to it than that. But that is the vast majority of our budget. I think people when people talk about cutting the local budget too, um, they usually don't fully understand what the city does. And you ask them, okay, like, okay, we'll, we'll cut the budget. Well, a majority of the budget is police, fire, road maintenance, and snow removal. So which of those things do you want to cut? And then they're like, uh, I actually like those four things, you know? Um, <laughs> I actually really like those four things. And and my biggest complaint actually is there isn't enough snow removal. And it's like, well, that's right. And, but you, you know, you have to be willing to pay for those things. And, you know, what we have to do is maintain the public trust and, and spend those things effectively and partner with the state, by the way, with, on snow removal specifically because unfortunately a lot of the big roads that run through a lot through Anchorage are state owned and controlled and so we have to make sure we're coordinating with them when it comes to snow removal but that might be a little bit too much in depth on snow removal than you were looking for <laughs> no let's just keep going let's talk about <laughs> snow removal <laughs> I think Anchorage has some fairly large problems with snow removal it's not the fault of the men and women who work at the at road maintenance uh, or at the state department of transportation I think the state department of transportation has endured some really significant budget cuts. And then the the municipal department has never really been funded to where it needs to be. Um, and then, of course, there, like I said, there are these issues with Anchorage is pretty unique in the, a number of our roads are state owned and controlled, and it can be difficult to coordinate. Um, and, and 
you know, and we, frankly, we get a lot of snow and it's really challenging and we're a little more urban than a lot of other places in Alaska where you can just kind of push it off to the side or there are a lot of empty lots or, or woodland areas where you can just kind of dump the snow, right? Anchorage isn't like that. We've got to actually get that snow and put it somewhere and Anchorage is inc increasingly dense, especially in the core. And so it's really challenging to get that snow and put it somewhere else, you know, and haul it. Hauling snow is very expensive. Um, but, I, but I do think, again, I, I really respect the men and women who do it. I, I actually had a, a snow removal town hall, like my second year on the assembly, <laughs> and brought together people to talk about these kind of issues because I find snow removal, like, I don't know, it's funny. Cordova, it's it's very different. And I, and I feel like for whatever reason in Cordova, they've done a little bit better job. And I think it does have to do with just the fact that it isn't as dense there. So you can just kind of push it wherever. In Anchorage, we've got to be much more strategic about where we take that snow. Um, and uh, yeah, it's something that I probably will spend more time than it, than uh, a normal mayor would uh, if I do become the mayor, because I just think snow removal is, is incredibly important. And actually, I'll give you you know it, it's not just funny i have a friend who um was a a, a physician's assistant in an um with an orthopedic surgeon and you know without violating hipaa he was telling me like you know we're 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 seeing a lot of car crashes and a lot of really serious injuries in a generic mm -hmm. sense because snow removal was so poor this year it was a couple of years ago and and um you know it has a real impact on people's quality of life and um yeah, I guess the last thing I'll say is that folks should uh, should slow down a little bit, especially at the, after that first snow. Everybody's just got to take a just got to take a breath and drop your miles per hour about ten miles per hour. You know, for sure. I mean, I think that the whole snow removal issue is is pretty interesting because it's this recurring thing yeah. that is essentially just an obstacle. You know, yeah. people need to go to work. People need to get groceries. People right. need to travel they need to transport themselves to different places and when right. the snow is in the way and it's not you know allocated or you know shoveled to its little areas right then we can't do anything right no i think it's right it's also interesting this year we've had many fewer complaints about snow removal than in years past and maybe that'll ramp up if we get a lot of snow in in late january and february but a big part of it right is because a lot of folks are working from home mm -hmm. and and so an interesting side effect of the pandemic is that people are driving less have driven less um, and thus there have been uh, fewer incidents with you know crashes involving snow removal and I'll just pivot from that and say there's also an opportunity there for Anchorage. The 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 remote work lifestyle is something that I think we could capitalize on. That people are realizing now, you know, maybe you don't have to live in Seattle or San Francisco to do some of these jobs, right? Maybe I could be a software developer and live someplace that's a lot more affordable, and uh, and work essentially from home, right? And I think there's going to be opportunity for Anchorage in the coming years if we can demonstrate we have affordable housing housing and we have a high quality of life. We have to focus on quality of life. Um, parks, trails, schools, you know, for people who have who have children, um, public safety. Um, and, and we've got some real natural advantages because of our natural setting, but we have to present ourselves to the world as a place you want to live. And if you can work from anywhere, you might as well work in a, in a place like Anchorage. You might as well live in a place like Anchorage, you know, and, and, and there might be an opportunity to develop and grow our service industry, our knowledge-based economy um, by capitalizing on this new move towards remote work. So what are you hoping to bring to the role if you're elected mayor of Anchorage? 
Yeah, well, I mean, first and foremost, um, you know, I'm trying to improve municipality of Anchorage. That that is why I'm doing this because I think we have a great city and it could be even better. Um, and you know, I, I have a, a website up, uh, forestdunbar.com, with a ton of specific policy ideas. Um, but without going into too many of the specifics, I'll say that we are going to be focused on economic recovery, about getting past this really really tough year and the pandemic, and then focusing on economic development, on quality of life and on uh, public safety. On economic development in particular, I'll say that um, we're going to focus on developing the outdoor economy uh, and the knowledge-based economy, which I just spoke about, and on revitalizing downtown. Um, the outdoor economy is really interesting, and um, I've been speaking with folks for years about this, and we're kind of missing the middle of the outdoor economy, the visitor economy that exists in other parts of the world. You know, So people are going to want to travel again, and Alaska has done a good job of keeping the infection rate actually relatively low and our death rate is relatively low too because of the, some of the steps that we have taken and because of our geographic position. So I think there's a real opportunity next year to say, you know, assuming that we can get the pandemic under control, to say, you know, we've got this spectacular setting. It's a safe place. Come visit Anchorage. And then over the course of the next several years, we need to be developing that missing middle. So Alaska is a great place to come visit if you are going to be on a tour bus. And my mom used to drive tour buses for Prince tours out of Fairbanks, actually. It's also a great place if you're a wealthy person who can, like, you know, go do some hardcore backcountry thing in the Brooks Range. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you're going to go helicopter out there or whatever. I mean, we're world class in that kind of stuff. But there's a middle ground where folks want to maybe fly up from the lower 48 or maybe come in from uh, a different part of Alaska or maybe even come from somewhere like Asia and spend just a few days or a week or two, but get an experience, right? Maybe they want to do a hut to hut thing. Maybe they want to do a, a, a long hike, but not the kind of hike where you have to, you know, buy a ton of gear and, you know, buy one of those sat phones so somebody can come rescue you. You know, maybe they want to do something where it's a little more curated, but not totally you know, holding your hand. And places like New Zealand, places like Switzerland, places like Iceland have really invested in that missing middle, even like Colorado. They've done a lot more to invest in the outdoor economy and they've seen it come back, um, you know, many fold. And if we can invest in and around Anchorage with attractions, with infrastructure, and we can get people to stay here in this municipality just one day more, that will mean tens if not hundreds of millions of dollars of extra revenue for our city um, and and new jobs, right? Because we know, so oil and gas will be around for a long time, but we know that it won't be around forever. And we've seen a real decrease in the number of those jobs. We have to be diversifying our economy. And places like Colorado, again, and uh, to a lesser extent, Montana, they've done a lot of work too, have moved away from just resource extraction to the knowledge-based economy and to the outdoor economy. And there is there should be no one in the world that can compete with Alaska. We just haven't done the right kind of investment. And I think the municipality partnering with the, the private sector and partnering with uh, the state government can make those kind of investments. And one of the first things I want to do is create an office of outdoor economy in the in the administration. And that's a little bit different um, than uh, than just the Parks and Rec Department. They'll certainly work with them closely. But it's not just about, you know, building an inclusive playground, for example, in East Anchorage or what have you. It's about connecting our trail system to the Chugach Forest or to other kinds of trails or building up those kind of attractions or even marketing the city and, and this region to other places, um, obviously partnering with Visit Anchorage. So I think there's real potential to do that. 
and um you know in, in some ways it's kind of an advantage that we're so far behind because there's i think there is some low-hanging fruit um and i'm for one, I'm very optimistic that with the right kind of leadership, um, I, I think Anchorage's best days are still ahead of us. You said your mom drove a tour bus. Yeah, she did. I feel like I can hear that knowledge and excitement and salesmanship <laughs> in the way you talk about Alaska. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. You know, she wasn't, she didn't do that full time. So when we were out in Eagle, she was a special ed aide. And my dad was a fisheries technician. He counted fish for fish and game. And then when we were in Cordova, you know, she, she actually did drive a tour bus there and I helped her actually. I was like the aide on the little tours. And then when they moved to Fairbanks um, after I finished high school, um, yeah, she, she was a tour bus driver there too. But I mean, that's what I want to be, man. I want to be a booster for Anchorage. I want to get out there and sell this city. I want everybody, because look, if you, I spent time in Laurel 48, I'm sure you did too. And I would tell people before you die, you have to come to Alaska. Mm -hmm. Alaska is part of the United States. It's easy and safe to get here. And there is nowhere else like this in the country or in the world. And I have been a lot of, a lot of places, you know, I'm not, I haven't been everywhere by any stretch. I don't have that kind of wealth, um, but I've been a lot of places and there is no place more beautiful than, than Alaska. And we have some really unique things to offer, not just our natural setting, but also our culture and our people. And that's another thing I wanted to bring up is um, the number one thing on surveys that people ask for when they come to Anchorage is um, Alaska Native culture and the indigenous uh, experience of this place. And that's another thing that we can invest in and partner with things like the Native Heritage Center and do things like um, naming conventions and, and uh, signs that have indigenous language on them. You know, like a lot of people don't know that Chester Creek, for example, it's not named after anybody. There was never a guy named Chester. It was because the 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 Denina word was Chanchnu, and the settlers found it difficult to say, so they just changed it to Chester. Okay, so Chanchnu means Grass Creek, um, and so we changed the name of Muldoon Town Square Park to uh, Chanchnu Muldoon Park, right? And to create that sense of indigenous place. And I think mm -hmm. there's lots of opportunity for that kind of education, like they've done in Hawaii, like they've done in New Zealand. We could do more of that here in Alaska. And it's both good for us to know our history. It's good for indigenous people to feel that pride and that sense of place. And it's good for the visitor industry because that's what people want. They want experiences, right? Young people in particular, they want experiences when they travel. And Alaska Native culture is a big part of the experience of Alaska. So getting back to city development sure. that you had mentioned earlier, this is another one of those moments in the conversation where I'm kind of like going further down um, to a part in this situation or in this, in this instance where I have reached out to people on Instagram and then people kind of in my, my personal circle and asked them if they had any questions for you. Sure. And Sebastian Garber asks, city planning aims to improve the functionality and ease of a city. It can include what color the buildings are, yeah. the layout of roads and other infrastructure. Do you have thoughts on how the layout of the city of Anchorage can be improved? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. Thank you, Sebastian. I, uh, <laughs> are you aware of the Instagram uh, account, Keep Anchorage Beige? I actually came upon that after... I wrote, I used to, or for a very brief stint, I was the editor of the Anchorage Press. And oh, nice. in my first or my second editor's note, 
I called Anchorage Beige. And it was after I wrote that that I actually saw the Instagram account. So I don't know which one came first. Yeah. (laughs) So that's not exactly what he's talking about. I mean, there there are structural things that I'll talk about too. But first, I want to talk about that. And the Anchorage Downtown Partnership and Amanda Moser there um, are doing really incredible work working with uh, the municipality, but also particularly with private businesses to try to repaint a lot of buildings downtown and trying to figure mm-hmm. out sort of a color palette for Anchorage, if that makes sense. So if you go to a lot of other cities, um, like go to Charlottesville, Virginia, for example, I spent time there in the military doing some military training a couple of times. And they have a distinct like palette you know sort of color palette for buildings boston is famous you know a lot of it is red for example red brick Mm -hmm. um anchorage is this sort of this utilitarian beige and you could really improve the aesthetics of downtown and the experience of downtown if we had a little more public art if we had a little more uh painting of uh facades of buildings um and they're doing really incredible work on that and i would love i would want to support that as part of revitalization of of downtown um also you know keeping with downtown um you know we have i was talking about how the the state controls certain roads um the fifth and sixth avenue are controlled in part by the state and we have a trucking route that goes through downtown and i think we really need to work with the state to try to redirect that parking uh, that truck route and look to for ways look for opportunities to turn certain one-way streets into two-way streets and then also work with the um the businesses on fourth avenue to see if we can close a portion of fourth avenue and turn into a pedestrian promenade and i know people people get upset with change but i'm just telling you a lot of other cities have had a lot of uh positive experience with this you know you get people out on the street feeling comfortable you make it feel more pedestrian friendly and then Mm -hmm. they tend to spend more money and spend more time out there like if you ever been to boulder colorado and been down their uh their promenade there um or the river walk in san antonio you know you create those pedestrian facilities where people want to come and remain in addition, you want to have actual people living downtown. We need more investments and creation of housing downtown so you have eyes on the street so people feel safe. Um, and that is how you revitalize downtown. And there's some interesting things we can do with the structure of downtown to do that. O- on top of that, you know, the whole city, we are going to, it's interesting, Anchorage is simultaneously a giant place and we're a place that's actually pretty land restricted when it comes to building housing. And we're going to have to be doing more infill housing of dense, more units denser um, infill, building things like accessory dwelling units, building things uh, near where people work so they can walk to work. And that kind of walkable mm-hmm. city is something that's really necessary, especially for young uh, for young folks, but also for seniors. You know, if you people want to retire in place, um, they want walking facilities. So we're going to invest in trail connectivity. We're going to invest in more bike lanes. We're going to invest in, um, and some of this isn't even like a direct investment. It's just changing our regulatory framework or going with the um the 2040 and what will soon be the 2050 land use plan which calls for upzoning in certain places or denser housing in other places so you know unfortunately um anchorage was built very quickly in the 70s and 80s in certain neighborhoods without a lot of amenities without drainage without pedestrian facilities um and and we are working through that we are trying to change that and make the sort of physical the lived experience in anchorage different we want it to be a livable walkable bikeable city because that is what we have seen has really thrived in the lower 48 and look we'll probably never be denver right we're not going to have that kind of scale but we could be boise 
right? I mean, we, th there are other cities that have figured this kind of thing out. Um, and, and there are lessons to be learned about how you make a city um, structured a little differently and more livable. So Gavin Kench, I'm hopefully, hopefully oh, I'm Kench. saying that correctly. Oh, you know him? Yeah, I do. Perfect. I work, used so, to work for his mom. Where at? Oh, she, she's a very prominent attorney. I interned at their, their law office. <laughs> okay. Right on. So, okay. So he asks, why should someone vote for you over Bill Falsey? <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't like to make direct comparisons between me and other folks. You know, I'll let him or any of the other folks make their own case. I'll just say that I have a vision for this city. Um, I have experience. I've been the chair of the Anchorage Assembly, obviously, a, a couple of times. Um, I, I have experience bringing together teams uh, and working through Anchorage policy. And I think I have the kind of excitement and um, uh, uh, broad base of support that is going to lead to uh, to us being elected, frankly. And I have a lot of respect for Mr. Falsey. Um, he also worked for Gavin's mom, which is, I think, why he probably is asking this question. Um, <laughs> he, he, is, he is certainly capable. Um, but I think that it's going to come down to, um, I, I think I'm probably going to finish first or second and head to the runoff. And, um, you know, hopefully I'll present a positive vision for the city. Um, but again, I, I don't like to make those kind of direct comparisons because, I, you know, I think that people can get a little too negative. Um, I'll just say that, you know, we, I, I've built a team, built a broad base of support, have a vision, have the experience to get it done. I'm dedicated to this. I'm ready to go on day one. I'm currently doing the work. I haven't, you know, I haven't left anything. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to be in the thick of it right up until July, if that is when I am lucky enough to be sworn in. Okay. So London B asks, have you read Alaska Watchmen and what are your thoughts on yellow journalism? I do not read Alaska Watchmen. Um, it has been shown to me through like, uh, I don't know, screen captures, I guess. Um, and it's this sort of very radical, very far right, um, you know, similar to Infowars, very toxic and often not based even remotely in fact. Um, and so I think it is very problematic. And as we've talked about before, um, we have to look to steer people away from it. And, and I think it also, unfortunately, is the kind of thing that gets clicks and the kind of thing that has really benefited from Facebook. Um, and so I think I hope that Facebook and um, Twitter and other platforms will start to recognize that um, they need to change their algorithm to um, to you know, not go just for clicks, but rather um, allow the more straight news uh, to, you know, the more uh, uh, neutral news to have pride of place, um, mm -hmm. rather than that kind of, as he describes it, yellow journalism. I don't know if, if I've, I would even call, even call it journalism. It's like a polemic, basically, right? It's just a, it's just personal attacks and lies and distortions and homophobia, by the way, I mean, just virulently homophobic, a lot of um, uh, underlying uh, racist tones as well. Um, mm. It's really problematic. Um, and so, I haven't read it. Yeah, I don't read it either. But I, but sometimes it will be referenced to me. And if people do go there, if you have the stomach for it, go and read the comment section just a little bit to see you 
what's being said, you know. Um, and by the way, antisemitism, going back to a conversation about my grandma, antisemitism is also something that is alive and well, unfortunately, in some of those pockets. And mm -hmm. um, I've experienced it. I know Mayor Berkowitz experienced it. A lot of other folks have experienced it. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, something that's very much, it's sort of under the under the surface, but very much present. You brought up Berkowitz, and I actually am looking at a question right now that I had a lot earlier in the conversation. I guess I just kind of skipped over it, but here it is. Former Mayor Ethan Berkowitz recently resigned after a scandal with news anchor Maria Athens. It was, in my opinion, a weird, messy situation that involved infidelity, racism, as you said, and nude photos. What are your thoughts on that situation? You know, I would rather not talk about it too much. It's so, yeah, messy is one word for it, right? It's mm -hmm. just, it was incredibly toxic and unfortunate. And he made a horrible mistake. Um, but he also was, as you indicated, um, the victim of essentially revenge porn, right? That he, against his wishes, someone posted nude photos of him. And then, you know, she also left anti-Semitic death threats on his family's voicemail, you know, where his wife or his child could have got it just, you know, could have heard it. I'm sure they probably did. And, and, and so I just actually, you know what, I'm not sure if it was his family or his personal voicemail. So let me, let me not overstep there, but just say, regardless, anti-Semitic death threats are not acceptable. And mm -hmm. um, it was just an incredibly unfortunate situation. And it took off. I mean, first there was an accusation that she made that proved to be totally false. Um, that wasn't based in fact, that was one of these conspiracy theories. And then, you know, it, it, it turned out that, her and, and the mayor had had this inappropriate relationship and it was incredibly unfortunate and toxic. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the city can, can move on from it. And, um, you know, I, I think that the acting mayor was the right person to choose to, um, uh, have the right kind of, um, uh, mentality and, uh, mindset and, uh, you know, temperament, I should say, um, to help get us through this interim period. So in that sense, um, I'm, I'm glad that, that Austin was able to fill that role. Why do you think it matters to the community, what someone does in their personal life as, as long as it's not illegal? Right. You know, I, I, it's, it's a really tricky question, right? I mean, I think, I think there is, I, I can see both sides of it. You know, on the one hand, what does it matter what someone does in their personal life? And would people like to have their personal life um, put out there on, on full display? And we know that there are deeply flawed people in their personal lives that have done really great work um, at the local level and at the national level. Um, so, you know, my first instinct is to say, you know, this is not something that is appropriate. On the other hand, you know, there is this issue of public trust um, and the way that he responded to it initially, I think, caused some consternation. But uh, again, it's just there's so much trust placed in elected officials now, especially remember how we were talking in the beginning about normal politics versus constitutional moments. Mm -hmm. I think in a normal political year, you know, we have seen cases where someone with a record of uh, personal indiscretion has been reelected or has remained in office. Um, and Maybe that's okay, you know, um, but in a, in this kind of 
time of very heightened tensions, this sort of constitutional moment, for better or worse, I think that you just have to maintain that public trust. Um, and it can, it's very tricky. And, uh, you know, social media, of course, has not made it any better. Um, now, all of the stupid things you did when you were a teenager are on mm -hmm. display for everyone to see. And I do wonder if we're going to reach a breaking point with that, you know, where there will be people because because you and me wait how, how old are you cody 32 okay yeah so i'm 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 36 so i'm a little bit older but still you know social media i didn't really grow up with social media like i said it came out when i was a junior in college it wasn't like i was in seventh eighth grade with a facebook account you know and i do wonder when those folks are running for office you know are we going to how much are we going to come down on them for the things that they did and said when they were just in their teens you know and uh, yeah, I, I just, I think it's, uh, it, it can be a little bit worrisome. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think it's, you have to have a balance between uh, personal and public life, but right now things are heightened and you have to do everything you can to maintain the public trust. Well, and I think it's interesting too, that I'm not sure how much you kind of browse around Twitter, but <laughs> there are teenagers and young adults that just don't pay heed to the idea that maybe this stuff can come back and bite you in the ass. No, I mean, that's right. And we're all a little bit naive when we're young and even when we're not young. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and we want to think that this is a country of second chances and a country where people will give each other the benefit of the doubt. But I'll tell you when partisan, when politics becomes this partisan, it's not just that the sort of broader society is going to, um, accept or reject it you're going to have like a partisan megaphone driving the the worst connotation of what you did right so the the restaurant closure for example the, so the mayor did the restaurant closure early in the summer and there was just an out and out lie that was told by a, a political blog here where they said he did this because it's helping his businesses that was hmm. total BS. I hope people realize that by now, that, that that was the outdoor dining program was something that the Anchorage Downtown Partnership had been working with and, and the, um, the, uh, uh, the Community Development uh, Authority had been working on. And it was totally unrelated to, to his business interests in those restaurants. And this is all like very well documented that he was not involved in that. It was driven by the pandemic. And yet this lie, you know, there's a saying that a lie will get around the world twice before the truth gets its shoes on. And that is exactly what happened because there was this political blog that told the lie that uh, continued to tell the lie. And then a bunch of radio stations picked it up and they told the lie and it started to creep into the sort of everyday public understanding of what happened. And that is really unfortunate. And that also drives how hard it is, I think, when, when these kind of things happen. Yeah, yeah, dude, it's difficult. It's difficult to know something is a lie yep. and try to explain it to the people that believe the lie, yep. even with facts, but that just, it doesn't work. It can be very difficult, especially if people are predisposed to dislike you for one reason or another, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm, of course, I experience that like everybody who's involved in politics. Um, and it's funny, usually when you meet people face to face, they're like, oh, wait, you're, you're not at all what I thought you were. You know, you're not how I thought you were because they, they believe some kind of caricature about you rather, rather than the truth. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it is really unfortunate. It's one thing to have people misreport on you. And that happens all the time. People, reporters make mistakes. They're human beings like everybody else. Like they'll, I remember when I was running for Congress, I had this one article, the headline was like, 
Forrest Dunbar declares for U.S. Senate. And I was like, I'm not running for the U.S. Senate. I'm running for the U.S. Congress. Like, that's a pretty <laughs> major difference, you know. But um, I got – that was a mistake. You know, that was just a mistake. That is different than people who actively, knowingly uh, – uh, and repeatedly lie. And I have had, and once you become the subject of these articles, you'll notice it more where these kind, this kind of yellow journalism that other writer was talking about, they will just manufacture things about you. And I've seen things written by that blog in particular, not the Ask Alaska Watchmen, but the other one that are just like straight up lies about me personally. Mm. And I'm just reading it like, man, I just, <laughs> it's just, it sucks, man. It's, it sucks to have people just out there with no regard for the truth. And those folks also, by the way, the, the first thing, if you read Hannah Arendt or, or you learn about the history of authoritarianism, the first thing you have to, d- to do is destroy the, the, the notion of objective truth, right? Mm-hmm. Eichmann the, in Jerusalem. Yeah, absolutely. That's how you do it. You, you, you get to, you, you, you destroy truth. You destroy the fourth estate. You destroy the idea that anything is true except for what the party says. And then that's how you end up with authoritarianism. And I'm, I'm sure those folks don't see themselves that way. They see themselves engaged in some kind of righteous battle against the left as they see it. Um, but what they're actually doing is undermining faith in American democracy and our ability to relate to each other. You know, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who is a, a famous moderate Republican senator, former senator from years ago, said, you're entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And it's really problematic where we can't establish a shared set of facts. What's it like when you read lies about yourself? <laughs> it's infuriating. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is. Um, and you, and you first have to think like, okay, who is reading this, and how proactive do we have to be in this? You know, in disparaging people of this notion, or, or not disparaging, but dissuading people. I'm, I'm missing the right word, but you know what I'm saying to yeah, yeah. Uh, to get the Convincing truth out them there. Of the yeah, truth. exactly. Um, how do we do that? How do you do that? What's the appropriate venue to do that? And should you? You know, because some of it is like you know the millennial adage: "Don't feed the trolls," right? <laughs> yeah. And so, are you feeding the trolls, or are you reaching some? group of neutral folks who will be persuaded one way or the other. And it's a very much a case by case basis. And I got to be honest, I, I don't read comment sections. I don't read a lot of those blogs. I, I, I often hear about them sort of through the grapevine and mm-hmm. anyone who is going to vote for me in general is probably not going to read those blogs. You know, I mean, if you're consuming the very, very most partisan media, then you are unlikely to vote for someone who's on the opposite party or even someone who's a moderate or, or in the center, you know, you're only going to vote for your tribe, basically your very mm-hmm. small, very aggressive tribe. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't read that stuff. And so we rarely respond to it. Um, but when we see something being misconstrued in the sort of broader press, I think that's when we, we try to counteract it. Okay. So back to those questions from Instagram and text messages. Sure. My mom, Sharon Liska, actually asked a few questions. Okay. (laughs) She asks, homeowners and people who pay property taxes always bear the brunt of bailing Anchorage out of economic downturns. Would you protect the property owners and not allow an increase in property taxes? 
Yeah, absolutely. We have done things over the last several years to try to make ourselves more financially independent of the state without relying overly much on uh, property taxes. So there was a time when the state provided about 40% of the revenues for Alaska for Anchorage. Now it's less than 1%. And so we have to search for other sources of revenue. But your mom's absolutely right. It can't just be the property taxpayers. And so actually in this budget, we've been able to hold property taxpayers basically flat, except for the fact that the Dunleavy budget gets rid of bond debt reimbursement. So the state is reneging on their promise to from years ago to um, to pay for a portion of school bond debt. And this is this is already issued debt from years and years ago that we can't default on. So the reason property taxes are going to go up this year is because of the Dunleavy budget and their approach to bond debt reimbursement. So that's really unfortunate. But the assembly We've done things that some, in some cases are not popular, like we passed a fuel tax, for example. All of the fuel tax went under the tax cap and offset property taxes. Um, another thing we did, um, we sold MLMP, and I was chair of the Anchorage Assembly when we put forward the final ordinance to sale, sell MLMP. I was very involved, as was everybody on the Assembly in that sale. We took the revenues from the MLMP sale, we paid off debt, and then we took the vast majority of those funds and we put them into the um, municipal trust which is was created with the sale of atu the old telephone utility back in the 90s and what that does the municipal trust is kind of like the city's permanent fund but it doesn't pay permanent dividends in fact it instead it pays it to the municipality itself so those revenues we can use instead of um, property taxes and so we put it all in the trust it'll be generating revenues forever um, and hopefully we can um, you know use that to offset property taxes um, another thing that we could could do, and this is something that we're going to be in con uh, conversations about, is create what's called a stormwater utility. And there's been a lot of conversations about that for the last three years. There are thousands of cities all over the country that have a stormwater utility. And it's sort of what it sounds like. It's a utility, like a water or gas utility. Um, but what they do is they collect utility bills from everybody. So you'd get a separate uh, a bill in your AWU bill, probably. But it would be used for drainage and uh, road maintenance and, and creating a system of drainage because we have a lot of problems with drainage here in Anchorage. And you might think, well, okay, that's just an additional fee. How does that help me? Well, right now what we do for to deal with drainage problems is we pass bonds. And bonds are paid entirely by property taxpayers. So we could hopefully offset um, all or at least part of those drainage-targeted Pro, uh, property tax bonds, property-backed bonds, um, and using these utility fees. And the other benefit to that is, right now there are some large property, uh, there are some large property owners in Anchorage. For example, the federal government, like the the federal buildings downtown, they don't pay property taxes, but they do pay utility bills. So right now, your mom and every other homeowner is subsidizing the federal building because the federal building gets the benefit of our bonds that are paying for drainage, but they don't pay property taxes. So if we had a cost cause or cost payer system that was in a stormwater utility, that would hopefully allow us to deal with this really serious issue and be a little more equitable in who paid for it, not just the homeowners. What's your position on implementing a sales tax, a sales tax? 
you know, I'm pretty skeptical of a sale of a general sales tax. Um, I, I know that it's been proposed several times. Um, and perhaps it w if it was a temporary sales tax, that was going to a very specific project like downtown revitalization. It might be something I would support, but pro uh, uh, sales taxes tend to be very regressive. And so you end up with, you know, uh, the folks who are least able to pay paying the, the majority of it. And the truth is, we already sort of have a sales tax. It's just piecemeal. You know, we have we have an alcohol tax now. We have the fuels tax that I mentioned. We have a rental call ta car tax and a bed tax. Those are a little bit different, but we have sales taxes. We just don't have a general sales tax. Um, but I mean, that being said, I'm, I'm open to having that discussion. And if it was structured in the right way, um, perhaps it could be something that could be done. But, um, you know, every time it's gone to the ballot, and it would have to go to the ballot. Every time it's gone to the ballot, it's lost like 60-40 or 70-30, right? So I, I don't think that there's a lot of desire to see a general sales tax in Anchorage at this point. What are your thoughts on using CARES money to buy housing for the homeless instead of supporting small businesses? Well, I think you can and should do both. And of course we did. The vast majority of the CARES Act money went to rental assistance, went to small business grants, particularly to the hospitality industry, um, and went to uh, daycare facilities, which I think a lot of people don't realize. We've spent $15 million to daycare facilities. Um, at the same time, uh, COVID-19 shut down a lot of our um, homeless shelters or made them severely limit the number of beds because they had to spread people out a lot more. And so we have people now in the mass shelter at uh, uh, at the Sullivan Arena, and we're paying for that in part with FEMA money, mostly with FEMA money. But we know it's not a sustainable, um, it's not a sustainable solution. Um, and we, we need to move towards non-congregate housing. Um, and I prefer that to purchasing buildings, but the building in Spinard, for example, I thought would have been, and we're not going to go forward with that purchase because it turns out that building wasn't structurally sound, um, but it would have been an opportunity um, to create that kind of non-congregate facility where people have a locking door and can get a good night's sleep um, and we can stabilize folks. You know, the most successful programs right now to resolve issues of homelessness are voucher programs. And if you live near a major uh, apartment building in Anchorage, there's a pretty good chance that there was there's somebody in there who used to be homeless, but they were stabilized using a housing voucher. Um, the most famous is the VASH voucher through the Veterans Administration. So we've been able to significantly reduce veterans homelessness using this kind of voucher. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just someone goes and rents their own small apartment, essentially, and then they stabilize. Um, so, you know, we had a unique crisis with um, COVID-19. Um, we spoke directly with the uh, Treasury Department and they said that, um, you know, trying to provide uh, housing for people experiencing homelessness was a legitimate uh, use of the CARES Act. Um, and then on top of that, you know, of course, we did, like I said, we did direct the vast majority of that directly towards the vast majority of CARES Act funds directly towards small businesses, uh, daycare facilities, uh, rental uh, relief and other ways to get it directly in the pockets of the people of Anchorage. And what are your thoughts on the, on the lockdowns? You know, I think the, the hunker downs are uh, really unfortunate. No one wants to do them, but we've seen that they have significantly reduced the spread of COVID-19. I'm hoping that with the advent of the, uh, of the, uh, 
vaccine that we won't have to do them again. I, I fervently hope that. I don't think anybody wants to do this. Um, we understand how painful it is for folks um, and how devastating it can be. Um, on the other hand, um, you know, people are getting sick and are dying. And particularly when the hospitals came to the municipality and said, you need to do this because we are running out of beds. I think that is what motivated the hunker down in, um, in December in particular. And it's interesting, we never, of course, entered a full lockdown. We didn't enter a lockdown anywhere near as strict as a lot of other places in the country or in the world. Um, unfortunately, the hospitality industry really bore the brunt of it. And that was why we um, tried to direct more of our grant funding to the hospitality industry. Um, but of course, it it wasn't enough. It can't be enough. Um, and it's not fair. And it's it's terrible. Um, but we saw a huge decrease in the number of infections and hospitalizations. And now we're to a point, hopefully, where we can reopen the schools, uh, in-person schooling, uh, providing that we can get vaccines to the people that will be working in that environment. So it's been a really tough year, um, but I'm hopeful that we can get through this. Okay. I have one more rapid fire Sharon Liska question okay. <laughs> for you. So what is your stance on preserving the PFD for the people of Alaska? I want to preserve the PFD for the people of Alaska. Absolutely. If, if there's anything that can be done to do so, I would like to see it done. Of course, I'm running for mayor, not for state senator or governor, so we don't have direct control over it. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That okay. was, <laughs> was that painless? <laughs> yeah, it was fine. I mean, speaking of the PFD, you know, my family, um, we weren't wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I got um, my clothes from Salvation Army till I was 12 or 13. You know, I was on reduced price lunches in high school. I drank powdered milk until I was, you know, 10 or 11. Um, but my parents were able to set aside my PFD. We didn't spend my PFD. They used theirs for the family. But mine growing up went into my college fund and it helped pay for college. Um, you know, and so I, I think that families really need the PFD. It's been an incredibly effective way to, um, to lift people out of poverty um, and for middle class families to use it to improve their quality of life or to pay for things that they really, really need. Um, and so if there's any way to preserve the PFD, I hope that it's done. Um, it's going to take a comprehensive fiscal plan at the state. And as of yet, they haven't been able to pass one, unfortunately. Okay. I have just a few more questions for you. Okay, man, we've been here at this for like two hours. Do you, do you use the whole thing or do you edit some of this out? Oh, I use the whole thing. Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. This is, yeah, I go through do people and listen I listen to I the just, whole thing. I feel like two hours yeah. is a long time to listen to. Well, me. this is like an hour and a half. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so being a public servant is a pretty thankless job. What made you want to do it? Yeah. You know, I, how do I say this? I resist the term thankless. I'll say not to like, not to <laughs> turn your question back on you, but actually people are very friendly very often and, and do thank me mm -hmm. all the time. That's not why I get into it, but I don't want to, or, or did it, but I don't want people to feel like being in politics or being in policy is a death march or uh, is something that they shouldn't consider doing because you realize that yes, there are a lot of toxic, angry people, but there are also a lot of really great people. And that's why you get into it. You, you, you enter public service to try to make the world a better place. That's it. At bottom, that's what you're doing. So we talked about my grandmother who was Jewish. I'm also 
Jewish. There's a Jewish principle called tikkun olam, which means to repair the world, to heal, heal the suffering of the world. And I think that's a, a good way to articulate it or to conceptualize it, that you're trying to w make the world a better place. And perhaps you see this as a way to do that. Now, that's not the only way to do that. I mean, absolutely not. There are many professions that, that lead to that or uh, many callings or paths or whatever you want to say. Um, but this is one that, uh, you know, kind of stretched out before me. And, um, and it's one that I'm walking now, I, I might not walk it my whole life, you know, I mean, I serve in the military as well, I, I could definitely see myself going back to full time military service. Um, and I could see myself doing a lot of things. But for now, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to serve, um, and the good work that we can do. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'll give you I'll give you one quick story, just to give an illustration of the kind of things you can do on the assembly. So this yeah. woman, this woman called me and she said, Hey, I've been shot like in the, in the leg. And I was like, Oh my God, you, know, you got shot in the leg. She's like, yeah, like somebody fought, took shot in this, in this park and it went through my wall and it hit me in the leg in the middle of the night. And I'm like, wow, well, what do you want me to do? And she's like, I want you to put a street light in this park next to my house. Cause I know these drug deals are going down in this little park and we need better lighting. And I was like, okay, for like, for somebody being shot, that's a very realistic ask, you know, mm -hmm. aside from going to the police. And so I went to the administration and um, we were able to find, um, an extra streetlight actually from an upgrade project we were doing along, I believe it was either Chester or Campbell Creek. And we got a new streetlight in that park. And that's the kind of, of thing. That's why you do this. You know what I mean? Someone had mm -hmm. a real problem in their life. You have an opportunity to help them. You have an opportunity to try to solve problems and um, you're, you know, repairing a little bit of the world. That's great. Well, Forrest, that does it for my questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? No, I, thank you so much for having me. I, I, I hope I wasn't too boring for folks. Um, I know this is perhaps a little bit different than the, the typical kind of podcast you guys do that might be a little more culture focused. And maybe later on, uh, if I am elected, I, we can come back and talk about pop culture, which I also enjoy talking about, or talk a little bit more about Alaskan culture. Um, but, uh, but thank you for everyone who's been engaged in politics this year. And I hope that um, I, I, I sort of have this dual hope, and maybe it seems a little contradictory, but on the one hand we can get back to a much more normal politics where people don't have to worry about things but they sort of stay abreast of what's happening and for those who have been uh activated i should say by the events of the last four years that they stay engaged and maybe go to their community council or follow the anchorage assembly or get to know their state house legislator because alaska is really unique you know we have it's still a small population state you're still going to run into people at fred meyer uh or at your kids hockey game or wherever it is and we have the opportunity to build real human connections and you have an ability to have a voice in your government you can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine you can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. <laughs>